Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's Welcome to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, where we discuss everything from hauntings and murders to the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Yay. Our hosts today are myself, Patrick Bean, and Tia Bean, our uh, producer and co-host today. And then we have Jameson. Hola. Sweet. Yay. Live from Connecticut. Um, he's actually three hours in the future. Jameson, did we beat COVID or anything? Did Trump leave? Since you know the future, it's a little same over here, man. Damn it! We're just, uh, no. we're just rejecting people from different states now, so we were close. Oh, yeah. We were really, really close. Are you gonna say? Doesn't that date the podcast? Mm, I don't. I don't care you, about that. You don't I'm, care? I'm, I'm, yeah. Because we're not releasing this for like a month yeah, or a month and a half. Hopefully, we're not there, and then people oh, okay. can be like, "Oh, this will," you know. It's, it's fine. Or not, I'll edit it out. Okay. All Here right. we go again. Welcome to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, where we discuss everything from hauntings and murders to the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Our hosts today are Patrick, Tia, and Jameson. Hey. Hi, guys. Hey. Uh, so, yeah, last week we had some good stories and everything, uh, but this week's theme is if you haven't guessed it already can you guess what it was what's the theme of today mm, oh i sh- i thought you were asking if i'm you asking it's not rhetorical um, right yeah <laughs> um, the, um what what would film i guess uh horror i guess to, horror to film like horror no curse, curses film? and film okay all right okay yeah. or something like that curses and film. cool okay yes that's about right yeah. yes we'll go with that um <clears throat> so yeah jameson you're you're first up Great theme. I uh, I have a doozy of a theme for that. Um, it goes off of the fa- the famous story of Amityville for uh, all those uh, horror fans out there. Uh, Amityville is uh, a name that rings true to most uh, ghost fans. Um, Amityville is a small town in Long Island, about thirty miles uh, away from New York City, give or take. So it's a real place. And, uh, what's that? It's a real place. It's a real place, yeah. Amityville is actually the name of the town that the haunting happened, and it's not the actual name of the house or the family that lived there or anything. Mm. Um, oh. Amityville is a small town in Long Island. <clears throat> that would be a cool last name, though. Yeah, I mean, a cool John last name or a cool name for your house. Like, we, we, oh, you named your house? Yeah, Amityville. <laughs> well, like some people, true, yeah. some people do name their houses. It's very weird. Really? It's kind of old-fashioned, yeah. you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I guess people name their cars, so it's really just a step up from that. It's usually when they have, like, an estate or, like, a big house. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. when you have lots of money and you can name things because it's yeah. so large. And this mansion's <laughs> name is Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> when you're poor, you don't name your apartment Phil. You know, yeah. it's like... <laughs> That's true, yeah. But yeah, so, uh, real, real place, real story uh, to some people. Um, and... It's been made into countless movies. Uh, some some say that it's been made over twenty times in on film uh, from different stories uh, with the name Amityville in the title or just stories about that that specific house. Um, so it definitely has quite the reputation. Um, this has been in folklore and American folklore for about I'd say forty years or so. Uh, and and the one of the gentlemen in it, uh, the, the 
George Lutz, who actually lives in the house, says that that's the reason he he feels that he is telling the truth is because the story has lasted, and he feels that uh, if it wasn't true, it, it would have it would have gone away by now. So most people, again, have seen the story, know something about the story, know something about the house, and so because it's been covered so many times, I really tried to more dive into finding out what what the you know behind the scenes is, or maybe what made this house possibly into the. Uh, having the entities or the demons inside it. So I dug a little bit deeper. Um, for general history of those that don't know what, what Amityville is or have only heard about the name and that's it, um, on the night of November 13th, 1974, uh, Ronald DeFeo. Now, Ronald DeFeo is the oldest of five siblings. Um, he has two, He's living with his parents and his four other brothers and sisters uh, in, in this house in Amityville. And at about 3.15 in the morning, he... Uh, takes a uh, rifle and slowly walks around to each bedroom, um, shooting his uh, brothers, sisters, and parents in the ba- in the back while they're sleeping. Oh now, all of the family members were discovered face down in their beds with um, a single shot to all of the siblings and two shots to each of the parents. Um, but everyone was found face down, and apparently, after he uh, murdered uh, the family, he showered. And then went to work. Um, yeah. Now this is a little unclear. They, I didn't. I, it was very difficult for me to find out what he did in between. But we definitely know that at 6:30 p.m. that same day, uh, he went to a local bar and ran inside in a frantic and panicked look and, and screamed, uh, "I think my parents have been shot." So he brings back some people from the bar. Uh, they go into the house. They do find the dead bodies and call the police. Uh, and as the police are questioning Ronald what to what happened, um, he basically kind of starts his story starts to fall apart, and they quickly learn that uh, he's responsible for these murders. Um, he goes to trial, and he starts to uh, basically come up with a, uh, the argument that he's he's insane, that he's crazy, that he heard voices inside telling him to do these murders, um, and that it wasn't his fault. Um, he also said other stories about how a mobster killed his father because his uncle was involved in the mob. Um, he tried to pin it on that his sister was involved uh, and that he caught her and then had to murder her to, or to shoot her to stop her from killing the rest of the family. Um, so he, he spewed forth many a story. And uh, the, the just jury wait, didn't just believe him. He for was one uh, convicted on uh, uh, five, six counts uh, of 25 years to life consecutive uh um, convictions. So that's that's the main story. That's 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 the, where the bad stuff started to happen. Um, and about a year later, a nice family uh, called the DeFeos, sorry, excuse me, called the Lutzes, um, purchased the house, and they're able to purchase the house for way cheaper than than it should be going for because of these murders. Uh, and because of this. Um, they're able to afford this house. They move in. They have, uh, I believe, three small children in the house with them, and then they have the two parents. Now, immediately things start going crazy, and if you read the book, you you, you have all sorts, or see the movie, you definitely have um, all sorts of small things that grow from small to large. Uh, and after 28 days, the family uh, decides that they've had enough, and they leave the house and everything in it and flee and eventually sell the house and never return to it. So what happened in those 28 days has come under scrutiny and 
uh, and and through story and through film, uh, the public has um, feasted on this story for the last forty years or so. Uh, we're going almost going on fifty years now. Yeah. Um, wow. So, what I wanted to do was find out why why did this happen? A lot of people have their theories that the house was built on an Indian burial ground, uh, that demons were in the house, um, that they that all of these things uh, that you read in the book uh, did happen. Um, of course, the film takes liberties, so a lot of what they said uh, didn't make uh, didn't consi- like wasn't consistent. So some things that were in the book were not in the movie, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So that led to a lot of people to to feel that you know maybe you are making these stories up and and whatnot. But obviously, we know that usually movies embellish. Um, so that being said, let's go into the history of the house. Um, Ooh, yeah, it was let's. built in nineteen twenty seven. Uh, at 112 Ocean Drive. Uh, they have now since changed that address. It is now 108 Ocean Drive. Uh, one of the uh, owners finally decided that they had enough of people gawking at them and staring at their house, so they completely changed the address and the look of the house. I'm so, sure uh, I'm sure that totally worked, and nobody visits yeah. the house anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, all right. But uh, they've definitely changed it. I mean, the way it looks back then is completely different now, so... There's no more. There's no more really. Other than the building itself, the frame is about the same, and that's about it. So, mm-hmm. um, so let's see here. So the, the the family that originally built the house, they lived there for a long time, and they finally sold it to uh, to the DeFeos. Um, they were a couple who were uh, forty three, about forty three years old, uh, and they again they had the uh, the five kids. They were very um, well respected in the neighborhood. Uh, they were very well known to be very. Um, loving of their children and uh, very respectful of their kids. Just, they would do anything for the children as they were, as they were, uh, it was heard. Uh, they even had a house on the front of the side, the front of the house that said high hopes on the front of the side, the front of the house. No, see, yeah. The house has a name, right? It's, it was yeah, called they high, have hopes. high hopes. Yeah. So whether that was a name for it or not, I don't know, but yeah. that was the sign that was uh, on the front of the house when they were that's, all burgers. That's so. definitely not the name of this apartment. Yeah, pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> The children um, were were ranging in age from nine to eighteen. Uh, Ronald himself was twenty three, uh, and he was the oldest child, obviously. Uh, but a lot of people, uh, his argument was that he basically murdered his parents because uh, he said that his his father was very abusive towards him. Um, then he started again. He came up with many excuses for this, so you, there's no right story for it because it, one one minute it was the mob, and then it was his sister, then it was his dad was beating him. So it, you know he changes his story constantly. Um, he did ask about insurance money when they died after the murders, and so it was believed by the police that he may have done this uh, for the insurance money itself. Oh wow! Um, which was about a million dollars or so, but. <laughs> Uh, again, obviously, he wouldn't have any access to that once he was, you know, convicted of the murders. Um, the house itself, again, we're going back to the, the Indian burial ground. Um, a lot of people said that the uh, the Shinnecock Indians um, were had a burial ground on that area, and that where the area of the actual house was built was actually an outside, um, let's say, sanitarium, for less, lack of a better word. Basically, the rumor started that any a Native American that was either mentally ill or sick or dying was basically put into this penned up area and left to die. Oh my God. Oh shit. Um, so therefore there's, you know, that, that was the thinking was that, okay, so there's a lot of this negative energy. 
Uh, and then, of course, when they died, then they were buried in this Indian burial ground. Um, all the research that I saw that I found is in contradiction to this. Um, there is, uh, first of all, it would have been the Massapequins, uh, but not the Shinnecock Indians. They they were nowhere, they were uh, not in that area. That was not native to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they would have left their their sick and dying and, and mentally ill uh, Indians, uh, uh, you know, um, sorry, uh, fellow. Uh, fellow Native Americans, they, that would have never happened. They took care of their elder, elderly. They were very uh, respectful of that kind of thing and very loving. So that would have never have happened. Um, there has been never any reports or f- uh, findings of any kind of burial th- uh, grounds. And the closest one was about 10 or 20 miles away. Uh, so that that whole theory was debunked. Um, a lot of, uh, if you look at a lot of pop culture, the, the Indian burial ground is the setting for so many horror movies at cemetery, right, uh, right. you know, the list goes on and on. So <laughs> they uh, only you know, move the headstones. I was, I was quoting poltergeist. Poltergeist. Exactly. It, yeah. It's, it's well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting when you brought up, uh, the burial grounds. I was, I was, I was definitely going to ask you at the end, like, well, where, where was there in any burial? And now it's also like, is there an accurate way to really look all of that stuff up? But I guess, I guess, you know, there has, you know, some historical record, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, New York obviously is one of the older parts of the country. They've been around since the, you know, mid 1600s. So, uh, you know, records of any kind of burial ground being moved or being found or anything like that, they have all, you know, historical records for that stuff, especially with zoning issues. And, you know, when you're building on things like that, you can't just go in there and do that. They, they definitely have laws against that and, and, and hist- historical records to prove that. So, That's cool. um, you know, whenever I looked it up, it was just all like, as, as they would say, poppycock, you know, it's, it's, it's all BS and there's no, there's no proof of anything about the, the native Americans, any of that stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes, did, there was native Americans like living in that really area. Yes, there was, you know, fishing and whatnot because the, the house sits right on, on the, uh, the ocean. So, uh, you know, it definitely would have been a spot for them to maybe possibly do farming and stuff, but that's about it. So interesting. Cross that off the list. All right. So Let's take that off the it's list. It's not an Indian burial ground. Not an Indian burial ground. Uh. So <laughs> now, um, th- again, the house was only built in the late twenties. So it's not like it's a, it's a colonial house. So there wouldn't be any ties or anything like that to, uh, uh, you know, to, to any old war stories or massacres that happened in the area. So that was also uh, ruled out. Um, after the after the house, after the family uh, moved out, uh, after the twenty eight days, they were successful in selling the house, and not one family that has lived in the house since has ever reported any strange occurrences happening inside the house. Hmm. Um, the house was sold in April of nineteen seventy seven, um, and. After that, that family just basically was like, we've never had any issues with people or any issues other than strange weirdos coming to our house to, you know, <laughs> <Take a laughs> check picture, out our place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So as far as that's concerned, um, basically, from all the articles that I've read and that I can gather, it basically only the Lutzes, the, the family that moved in after the, the murders, they were the only ones who said and publicly and believed publicly that the house was haunted. Okay. Um, so I guess what the story basically boils down to is 
do you believe enough that there that the, does this family believe that these things were really happening to them and did they really occur or was it a complete hoax that they were trying to you know either make money or get some kind of recognition or whatever did uh, the, w- was there any record of them having profited from from this story you know what i mean like did they own i mean i guess they might have owned the rights to sell to a author yeah, but or a film you know what i mean like didn't okay. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Please. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can ask your question because I oh, can answer it. But... I was going to say, didn't Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were like attached to the story, didn't didn't they profit from it? Okay, so most of the articles that I read, their name did not come up very often. Um, they definitely had psychics come into the house. Um, they had priests come in, uh, but their name actually, funny enough, did not pop up um, basically at all. Uh, oh, wow. It might have been a casual mention or whatever, but as far as them profiting, uh, I didn't I didn't see any articles or anything attached to it. Now we did talk about uh, them possibly pulling the hoax on purpose. Now the lawyer for um, the lawyer for Ronald DeFeo um, ended up getting together with the with the um, Lutz family and. When the, the actually the day that the movie was released, he came out saying that it was indeed a hoax, and that uh, himself and the Lutzes uh, came up with the story over a, over a few bottles of wine, as it was said. Oh my God! So the day that it was released, he was trying to to, to trash it. Now a lot of people noticed that um, he had you know that he was having money uh, troubles with the Lutzes. Uh, so maybe he was trying to kind of, you know, damage their reputation to get back at them. Uh, but the Lutzes both um, took lie detector tests uh, to prove that they were telling the truth, and they both passed. Hmm. So it's kind of a, a of a he said, she said situation, and that's where it gets a little murky as to whether this story is true or not. Now, again, the, the, the things that were said in the book, um, cold spots in the house, the flies filling up an entire room, strange odors, um, invisible hands pushing you and yelling, get out, uh, uh, green slime coming out of the keyholes. These things, uh, the lawyer came up with excuses as to why they got these ideas and just kind of embellished on them. Um, and a lot of the things kind of maybe got blown out of proportion by the author. So let's say, in real life, the screen door potentially was ripped off the hinges. In the book, it was the the forty pound front wooden door was blown off. Oh wow! So you know, embellishments, mm-hmm. um, things that possibly could have happened. Maybe maybe a knife did fly across the room or fell onto the floor without it being in a you know an easy spot to fall. But then it was you know amped up in the book where you know silver ore is flying through the air. And, you know so. It seems to me, reading it, that it really boils down to, if you want to believe this story, you can, because there's a lot of reasons why you should believe it, and then there's a heck of a lot of reasons why you should not believe it. That's interesting. Um, so that, that's basically what I came up with in, in, in my research. Crazy. What do, you, how, what do you feel? I feel like you don't believe it. Well, now I've read the book myself. I read the whole book, and... I was. I think I was expecting a little bit more stuff coming from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly believe that 
you know, because it, it makes me think to myself, this family doesn't have a lot of money. They buy a house that they're that they're extremely excited to get because they got a steal on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 28 days, they leave everything and just immediately like they, they, they get rid of the house as quickly as they can. Something happened. You know, there's no reason why they would be making this up. You also asked about money from them. They didn't. They made some money off of the book, but not a lot. They weren't making millions. They, they mm-hmm. made, a, you know, a few thousand or whatever. And and it really that was kind of the end of it. They really didn't look. You know, they, they would hold press conferences, but then so they did strange things like they would hold press conferences and then they would be very reluctant to talk about what they want, what they called a press conference for. You know, so it was it, it sent mixed messages to the public saying, are you guys looking for attention or not looking for attention? Because it, mm-hmm. it seems like you want it. And then as soon as you get it, you're like, we don't want this attention. What are you doing? So they moved. They went to they went to California they, they, you know, basically just kind of went about their business and tried not to make a big deal out of it. They didn't really try to write more books about it or, you know, really kind of, uh, you know, jump on the, the, the tidal wave that was going along with this whole story. So I really think it's kind of one of those cases that if you want to believe it, then there's a lot of reasons why you should and there's a lot of reasons why you should. And that's really tough. That's mm-hmm. crazy you know? because, it, you know, there it seems, according, you know, to the – the book and you know what they're saying you know that there's like so much physical uh evidence that they're witnessing and uh that's so few and far between in general and i think being someone that has belief in these types of things it makes you want to even believe it more right yeah you know uh the son um the the son still lives in new york and he a, a recent special just came out a few years ago uh and and he says that, you know, I, I remember everything that happened and I still have nightmares to this day. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I know these things really did happen. So, you know, when you're a kid, you can, you can be, I don't want to say you can be manipulated, but you can be kind of led to believe certain things. So hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, but then like overactive people, imagination is real. Yeah, absolutely. People also say though, that kids are, uh, more sensitive to that sort of thing as well. True. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I I do remember those times when I was a kid, you know, when you see that coat rack type of thing and, you know, when you're sort of in the dark, you imagine this thing and then it starts to move and do these things and you're like, you like nowadays you'd have to take some serious drugs to do what your childish mind can imagine, you know, or at least when it comes to being scared. Right. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was always afraid of things in my closet and, you know, all that stuff. So your imagination as a little kid, especially when you have your parents telling you these things are happening. Oh, yeah. yeah, That's true, too. That's true. So, I don't know. I I really don't get that. I I, I never got that feeling from the book or from the articles and from the book and all that, that that the parents were malicious in wanting these kids to be on board with this story. And we need to make money for the family. So you got to say these things, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't get that. Uh, they were, the, the father owned a business. He seemed pretty, uh, you know, pretty stoic guy. The, both, both the parents were remarried. Um, so it looked like they were more about the family than they were about anything else. And that's really, they, they felt that whatever was going on in the house was affecting their family. And so they decided we're not going to, we're not going to stand for this. We're leaving immediately. Um, what, what those demons are in the house that either a red, red, uh, excuse me, led Ronda DeFeo to murdering his family did that carry over into the next family? Who knows, you know? 
Yeah, or, or do again, demons really even work like that? Could this just yeah. have been a freak, you know, not necessarily something with the house, but just something that happened? Yeah, it's just a bad thing that happened. And yeah. again, no other family has had any issues. Nobody else has complained about anything. So it's like, that's a bit strange, you know, but you know, maybe these families didn't have children. I don't know. It's just, it's very odd to me that this is the one time that it happened for 28 days and then it never happened again. I am curious what the house is listed for now. Well, it's uh, it's going in the high eight hundred thousands. Oh, all right. Yeah, so, so I don't have that. So it's back. <laughs> so it's back up at least. It's not like. Oh yeah, we're looking at close to a million. I mean, it's it's right on the water. It has a pool in the backyard, a boathouse. Uh, the boathouse is very prominent in the story. So if you read the story, then it's very prominent and as to weird things that were going on in the boathouse. Right. That's right. Um, but yeah, so obviously uh, there's no lack of uh, stories and movies and books and television shows to go along with the Amityville story. So if you if you listeners out there want to do more research or just even have a good time hearing about a fun uh, haunted house, uh, check out the Amityville Horror or uh, as it's uh, told a quote unquote true story. Crazy. Yeah. And there you go. Indeed. Oh, wow. Man. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you. Thanks yeah, for the story. Thank you. That's, Thanks for listening. That's crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. So, Pat, you're next. Um, I'm doing the Exorcist film. Bum, 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 bum. Guttural screams will be inserted in the back. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, that nice. Was a good one. That was really good. <laughs> Never mind. You Editing. scared our cat. Editing out guttural screams. We I can it. taste the pea soup now. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so... Directed by William Friedkin, produced by William Peter Blatty, who is also the one that wrote it. He is also the one that wrote the novel. Um, he actually did uh, did that intentionally. He wanted they wanted the rights to the book, uh, and he said that only he would only do it if he could write the screenplay as well, um, which is awesome because I feel like movies have such a better, you know connect or longevity especially but also just when you're connected to the book so you know by the author to the film like you're pretty pretty well you know understood that you're gonna get a good cut of what actually was in the book yeah um who's the interview with the vampire yeah and, and rice yeah. wrote the screenplay that's that right, is yeah. that is a perfect film such a great movie yeah exactly <laughs> um that's the next episode nothing to do with horror i'm just, just gonna think much, about how much we love lestat i'm just gonna think about yeah brad pitt and tom cruise for a minute here i'll be right back <laughs> insert steam uh, so the budget was $12 million but in the box office it pulled in 441.3 million um, so it did very well as a, as a, a horror film, uh, especially in the 70s. It is uh, the first installment in the Exorcist film series, and it actually follows the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by two priests. Um, so yeah, like I said, it was very, very popular. We got released to 24 theaters starting off. And audiences were all over it, waiting in super long lines. Uh, and it was very cold because it was released in December. So, you know, to do oh. that, they were, you know, people were like, oh my God, you're waiting in the cold to see this woman walk backwards down the stairs. Um, <laughs> which I'll tell you later, that was actually not put into the premiere. Uh, that yeah, I was going to say, that was yeah. cut from the original because they couldn't do it, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, it was just, well, it was because of um, everybody was, uh, had very, 
you know, different physical reactions to the film, including fainting, vomiting, um, but they were mostly considered uh, that because of uh, the scenes where uh, Linda Blair actually undergoes a realistic cerebral angiography. I don't know if you remember that scene where they they're like putting insert, iodine on her neck yeah, and, and they, stuff they and insert a needle into the middle of her neck and all that blood comes out and then they put the x-ray thing around her head and it's like dun, 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 you know like it's well, a it's an interesting scene mostly um because uh after watching a few documentaries i i found out that um the director william freakin actually hired on the staff to do it there were there was no actors in that room so that there was a real um, it was a real yeah. it wasn't a real angiography um they didn't perform all of that realistically yeah um but they, <laughs> you know what i mean like they didn't actually x-ray her brain and stuff um but everything uh, else some people it's rumored that she was there with the needle and stuff was real because they wanted to have like a realistic all that i but mean it looks real it looks real but there was no confirmation on that but i'll get to it later this director was not like all right in the head um oh. But some directors aren't, uh, but the art they produce turns out really well. You know what I mean? Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski. <laughs> um, but there's just, like, directors do a lot of weird things to, you know, get... Uh, but, yeah, we'll definitely get to that a little bit later. But, yeah, they were saying people were freaking out because of the cerebral angiography and also, of course, the uh, crazy scene where she masturbates with a crucifix. Um, classic right yeah that one didn't get edited out what kid hasn't done that though i mean let's be honest <laughs> i think that's i how think you, you need to tell us no don't tell us <laughs> don't tell <laughs> us. be careful what you wish for dear <laughs> god he is on the east coast now it gets crazy over there oh god um <laughs> there were also reports of heart attacks miscarriages as well yeah during during uh watching of the film but if you think about it i mean the first time i watched this which was i don't know 2000 something you know because you know i'm much uh younger towards this crowd that originally watched it like they weren't they weren't prepared for a horror film like this you know like most horror films out there where they some of them were graphic you know but they weren't as well done so it didn't really pull you into this. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was a lot more believable and realistic. Straight yeah. up, yeah. Like most of the, there were graphic stuff out there, but that was like slasher stuff, and you know, um, I guess they had really graphic stuff, but that would be like rated X type of stuff that wouldn't be played in a film where people are bringing sometimes their kids, you know, um, and that actually became a big issue because many children were seen going to the film. So they actually increased the ratings um, to the, they actually um, gave it an R when, when they were uh, trying to get it as an X. Um, they were trying to push for an X because they wanted to get kids to not be, you know, not be allowed, not be allowed yeah. period. Um, a few cities even tried to ban the film outright to prevent children from seeing it. And, uh, some obscenity concerns actually kept the film from or kept the film from a home video release in the UK and that was until 1999. Oh wow. Um that, yeah, that's like yeah, 20 years after the film and you're still like you can't watch this at home. You'll wow. you'll get a crucifix and you'll just go to town. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, a lot of people thought it was uh, a way of kind of glorifying Roman, uh, yeah, glorifying Roman Catholicism um, because of in the original story that this is based on, which I'll get into in a little bit, um, it was actually said that only a Catholic could perform an exorcism. So it was kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Catholics were like the Avengers or something. Save us, Jesus! But it was uh, really well uh, received, and it actually became the first horror film ever to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Mm. Um, it didn't win. Um, the only horror film to ever win uh, Best Picture was Silence of the Lambs, and that's kind of, some people say it's like a crime thriller, not exactly a horror film, but mm-hmm. watch that movie and don't be scared. Like Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Silence that's of the Lambs, that's a, that's a horror yeah. film. I think Exorcist sure. is more scary. Yeah, but... I, think, I think Exorcist is definitely scarier, for sure. But they're both horror films, you know? Yeah. Red Correct. Dragon and, the, and Hannibal, the ones that came afterwards, those aren't exactly horror films, but Silence of the Lambs definitely a horror film. But uh, on that point, I kind of wanted to look up uh, to f- see what other horror films, because horror films are very commonly neglected from the Oscars, the Oscars, uh, just because they're graphic horror and they, films and, and people of color. With, oh Jesus! Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so the other ones that uh, got nominated but didn't win uh, throughout history, Jaws, which you, know, you could say isn't a horror film. Sixth Sense actually got nominated. Um, Black Swan got nominated. Huh. Um, and then, does anybody know the last one? It's pretty recent. Get Out. Nice. Get Out. Get oh, very Out. Good. You knew it. Get Out. Um, yes, it was um, that one. That one. Sh- I don't know. I wonder what, what won that year. I wonder. Get out. Get out. One for best screenplay. Oh, it did. Oh, but right. what won that year? I know this was. Uh, it, that was that whole. Was that uh, Moonlight? Uh, Moonlight. Yes, that was the right. whole La La Land Moonlight debacle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but he uh, he got a best original screenplay credit, right? That's right. Yeah, that's what, yeah. what he was saying. Yeah. I I don't. I didn't know. I didn't remember that. But that's uh, at least he got that because that was a brilliant film. Horror films are awesome. Um, but yeah, so the Exorcist uh, novel and uh, the film is based on the novel, but the novel is based on the exorcism of Roland Doe, who is uh, an actual person. Um, they um, also called him Robbie Mannheim or Roe. But um, it, it was. It's kind of, uh, it reminds me of the Amityville story. You know, there are, there are definitely um, lots of belief on both sides of it. There's a lot of belief in the skeptic side of it, but there's definitely a lot of belief in the fact that it did happen. Um, most people think that because the novel was um, so so inspired by the story that, you know, he actually went and read the diary that the priest wrote during the exorcism and that's where supposedly a lot of the um things pulled from the novel and the film were actually pulled straight from the diary whether or not those things actually happened you know there is almost little to no record um which i'll get into in a second but the things that they did say happening were all things that were found inside the film uh furniture moving things floating um, there was, uh, he actually supposedly, d- 
during the first exorcism, he, the Roland Doe took a bedspring from out of the mattress and then slashed the priest's arm with it, um, which isn't necessarily, you know, out of this world, but, you know, this was a 14-year-old boy um, that, you know, so, which the movie is a 12-year-old girl. I don't know why he wanted to make that switch or if it was just to kind of distance itself from the story a little bit more. Um, but so they had this first um, sort of exorcism with the priest. Um, and like I said, they they met originally with their Lutheran priest. And the Lutheran priest met the kid and was like, we got to we got to call a Catholic priest. You know, like they're the, they're the mm. demon busters. <laughs> you know? So like they our God can't handle this. Right. That was like there's there's so many references to that when I look this up. Um, it, was, it was kind of interesting. Um but it's it's also kind of freaky when you think about it because uh, Catholics treat it uh, kind of seriously. Um, if at first it was, I mean, they treat it serious enough to have a whole branch of the church dedicated to it, you know. Sure. Which is really it's weird, you know. But also, if you look at religion in other aspects, you're already worshiping an invisible person. So what's one more branch? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's, you know, to the skeptic's point of view. He says, he says this as he's wearing a Baphomet shirt. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, um, so like I said, they, were, they, did, uh, they did one exorcism and then they conducted the Catholics and then they, um, I'm sorry, they did an interview sort of. Then they conducted the Catholic priest. They brought in a priest specifically for the exorcism. And they did, they performed two different exorcisms. The first one was conducted at Georgetown University Hospital. Um, and supposedly he, um, I say, I'm going to say supposedly a lot because none of this is actually documented. It's all just documented in the diary. But uh, supposedly he closed down this whole like wing of the hospital and he brought in like different people. Um, it was supposedly witnessed by over 40 people um, that <laughs> things were floating around, um, the shaking of the bed, the flying objects. Um, and then the last exorcism that was held, there was, um, I'm sorry, that one was the one that had more people. The first one, there was like 15. Uh, the last one they actually had, yeah, over, uh, they said over 40 people. Um, and then that's where the guttural voice came out. And supposedly one of the other priests that was brought in said he saw marks on the teenager's body, um, that said, you know, hell and evil and all this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something that no, the devil that's branding, uh, copyright branding right there. You're not a, the, the, the get, devil was, you can get sued over that stuff. he couldn't find a public school bathroom. So he found this kid to write hell on. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, uh, a lot of it was um, not... There's there's almost no um, record of any of it actually happening besides the diary. Um, it was one of three exorcisms that had been sanctioned by the Catholic Church in the United States at that time. So this is the third exorcism ever to be held in the United States. Wow. Through the Catholic Church, um, which also kind of lends to maybe this wasn't, an, you know, maybe maybe it was just, you know, a kid acting out. Um, so later analysis by several different skeptics of the paranormal concluded that Doe was likely mentally ill. 
um, and he was acting out due to, I mean, a lot of different things we didn't know of, especially back then, you know, that we treat nowadays, autism, uh, different, different things of, you know, that developed schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't even know how to deal yeah. with that at that time. That, that kind of came up in the, the exorcism of Emily Rose, which is a true story as That's well. That's true. Yeah. They, they talked about that. It was possibly just a mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's crazy. Which is terrible because she ended up dying from because neglect, didn't basically. They basically starved her. Yeah, um, but it was because you I think know, she died of dehydration, which is oh, uh, which is horrible. a long time. But yeah. but there are mental illnesses where you won't drink water. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's... or just yeah, or schizophrenia in general, where you just nothing makes sense. You know, yeah. to you, yeah. Um. So yeah, like it was uh. They said she or he was uh, probably mentally ill, and the, even the words that were carved on his skin looked like they could have been done by himself, uh, and none of the words appeared in front of anybody. They were just seen, you know, Uh-oh. like they took off his shirt to do the exorcism, and it was on his body, and they freaked out, you know, but you know he what they didn't nobody the words didn't yeah magically appear like they usually do in a film. Um, so like I said, also, yeah, in order to do the film, Friedkin was allowed access to both of the diaries of the priests that were involved. And he also had um, notes and diaries from different doctors and nurses. And they discussed all of the events with um, about Doe in great detail. Even he interviewed his uh, aunt and she supposedly saw it as well she was there he also mentioned specifically that he does not believe that the head spinning occurred um mm. that was definitely added you know um Just or, for the or, movie. or at least he thinks he, he you know but no it was written down oh crazy the head spinning was written down in the diaries um and that's another thing so supposedly two, that two, really two, did two happen. separate diaries were having kind of matching stories sort of um whether or not it was you know you know, someone pushing someone to believe differently. Right, con- conspiring together. Conspiring together, yeah. Um, and uh, Friedkin is actually uh, secular. He's, uh, despite coming from a Jewish family, so there's no, like, my religion is better than yours type of push for this film, you know. He has no agenda with it. it there you go, thank you, yeah. No, <laughs> I like my religions better. Yeah, that one's definitely more professional. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, Buddhism saved the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. We, all three of us are going to hell, by the way. Oh, totally. Yeah, yes. This one, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> and when we get there, we'll find out that it turns out the Mormons were right. Right, yeah. Oh, God. And we're going to meet a lot of the people we talked shit about. Um, <laughs> so just some interesting tidbits uh, before I get into some, some of the weird stuff. Um, the casting, I, I just, uh, rewatched the film, of course, kind of had to, and was just kind of in awe of the movie. The actors are so, so good. And I originally thought first time watching it, like, oh, this was a horror film. No one did horror. So they just kind of got the actors they could, you know, and they were yeah. just turned out to be great. But apparently it was much more, uh, thought out than that. Um, they actually went through several different rounds of casting and Stacy Keach, do you guys know who, who that is? Sure, Sergeant uh, Stadenko. Yeah, I think. Did you ever watch Titus? I think he was his dad in that show eh. too. 
He's uh, the yeah. police officer from the Cheech and Chong movies. That's <laughs> wow. There you go. There you go. That's a good one. That there you go, listeners. I only exclusively <laughs> watch princess movies, so. <laughs> yeah, Stacy Keach would not be in a princess movie, uh, but he was actually uh, uh, signed on already to play Father Karras, um, who is basically the, the the main role, um, which um, was weird because. Uh, eventually, um, they went on to cast someone else, but he they they immediately signed him on and then just kept auditioning people. The huh. studio actually wanted Marlon Brando for uh. the, for the role of Lancaster Marin. Oh, I love Father Marlon Marin. Brando, but he that would have been horrible. and he would have derailed the whole thing. Oh my God. Like later in, like he always was like improving things and wearing waistbands on his head and stuff right, like that yeah. you know uh, like which was great for some of the things that he did but this is like such a delicate and a serious thing yeah yeah like, i mean not to say yeah, his other films weren't serious but yeah um yeah he brought a certain ham to right, his role right, later yeah. in life um freaking the director immediately vetoed this by stating it would become in quotes a brando movie yeah, there you which, go. that's true though. So which is basically so what we all it. just said. He knew. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he knew. Yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholson was also up for the part uh, of St- of Karis, Father Karis, before Stacy Keach was hired, um, and he was actually hired by uh, Peter Blatty, so the person that wrote it, you know, was like, "I want, huh. I want him for sure." Mm. So he um, saw The Shining and knew he was going to be good, right? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, according to <laughs> William Friedkin, uh, Paul Newman also wanted to portray Karis, but that, no, nah, I would, Paul Newman, no. Nah. I mean, he's, Paul Newman's great, too, yeah. He would have been too cool for the role. That's true, yeah. Huh. May he rest in peace. Is he dead? Yes. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Edit. But his pasta sauce lives on. <laughs> that's right, yeah, I think I have some of, some of his salad dressing or something around here um william freakin also first approached audrey hepburn uh, but she said she would only do it if it was shot in rome because that's where she was living with it her husband or with she was living with with her living at with her husband at the time um so no one wanted to move the entire film to italy uh, because of yeah. the amount of money that would uh, but apparently apparently they looked through it though and they were like you know we we you know the language barrier we'd have to translate the you know because they really wanted uh audrey hepburn um but yeah of course they weren't going to do that they also looked to Anne bancroft uh but she was pregnant so couldn't throw her around i guess um dun, 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 dun. and then if the last one but not least uh jane fonda um, she actually turned it down and said, in quotes, it is a piece of capitalist, capitalist rip-off bullshit. <laughs> so she, I, she was a huge fan. I would have loved, loved Jane Fonda. That, I think she would have been great, but that sounds exactly like Jane Fonda to say that. To say that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially, but, but I she's mean, a good actor, so yeah. She, would have, yeah, she wouldn't have expressed that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, she would have been good, and the character is so much like her, and... Anyways, right, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. It's a great um, movie. Also great. Let it go, Tia. Right, I know. yeah. Don't worry, Tia. This one, this one, next one's for you. Uh, Peter Blady also suggested his friend, Shirley MacLaine. 
Yeah. I love Shirley MacLaine. She's too snarky and sarcastic, though. I don't know if that would... Nah, she yeah, would have rocked it. I, I, think I can't think of her being in a horror movie or, like, a very serious role. Serious role, yeah. Well, I'm no, sure it exists. I'm sure it exists, yeah. I just am uneducated. <laughs> right. Um, You're not supposed to say that during a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. But apparently... <laughs> He was hesitant to cast her, given her lead role in another Possession film called The Possession of Joel Delaney, two years before. Uh-huh. Which is weird, because I, uh, reading uh, this, I kind of expected uh, The Exorcism, or The Exorcist to be kind of the first of Exorcism movies. Hmm. Yeah. You know? Because it was... Yeah. That seems... I mean, but I guess, you know, 70s isn't as old as I think it is. I've never seen um, that. I'm going to watch that i love yeah. shirley mcclain yeah right i would love to see her yeah like in a serious horror role that'd be cool yeah we're gonna watch that and get back to you in the next episode <laughs> um but eventually freaking uh went and saw jason miller in a show that he was doing um uh, but yeah he had never done any any film at all he had just done stage plays um, and freaking saw him and was like, oh, he has this super dark look, but he's like really, really good. Um, they actually, oh yeah, quotes, dark, good looks, haunted eyes, quiet intensity, and low, compassionate voice. And they, he loved him so much that the studio, he made the studio buy out Stacy Keach's contract. Because uh, you had already cast somebody, you, like a lot of people were like, no, like I'm in the movie, you casted me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they bought it out, and I think that was a good choice. Stacy Keach, I think, would have been kind of strange in that. Um, also, another another strange um, choice was uh, Denise Nickerson, who they wanted to play um, Linda Blair. And if you don't recognize that name, or Reagan. maybe you'll recognize. Uh, sorry, yeah, the playing Reagan, not Linda Blair. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very deep movie. There was actors for actors for actors. Um, <laughs> No, Denise Nickerson, she, she was going to play um, Reagan. Um, if you don't recognize that name, she was probably better recognized as Violet Beauregard. Oh. From Willy oh, Wonka okay. and the Chocolate oh, okay. Factory. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, which is so Violet, funny. you're turning Violet. Right. <laughs> Violet should have gotten the trip in the elevator. I'm sorry, that's a... She should have won. She was the most determined. I thought she, she was the one that's like, I want to go, Danae. That's Veruca Salt. Ah, okay, okay. So Get with movies. it. I know, yeah. <laughs> I only know horror. I yeah, guess. the other girl turned into a blueberry. Yeah. Oh, but she knew her candy. She was dedicated. She was just, you know, snarky one time, but Willy Wonka was snarky the entire time, so. <laughs> You're saying funny. it was rigged? Totally. It was rigged. I totally. It. Also, Grandpa is not a not a good person. Like he's bedridden, but all of a sudden, when it suits him, he jumps out of the bed and can do a whole dance and song. <laughs> Grandpa Joe. <laughs> I uh, digress. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason uh, Peter Blady insisted on uh, having Freakin direct it was because uh, William Freakin actually directed The French Connection. Uh-huh. Um. Brilliant. Have you guys seen French Connection? I have. You have. Brilliant film. It's a really, really cool film. Um, but the shooting was really why it was cool. You know, it was very, one of the best chase scenes ever. Um, but the he thought it had a very realistic approach to it. So he's like, all right, let's do this. And 
Unfor I mean, not yeah, I guess unfortunately. There was a lot of weird stuff that happened around the set, um, but most of it was to kind of make it real. Um, there was there was no intention of um, trying to make the set feel haunted or something like that. Um, most of it was because they were just working really, really hard doing this film. Mm -hmm. The shooting schedule was supposed to be 105 days, but it went way over 200. Um, wow. And that was just the shooting. Then you have your editing, then you have your 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 um, dubbing and stuff like that. You got to go back and do your... What's Mixing and all that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, ASR. And, uh, and yeah, but so... So yeah, it was a kind of a painful shoot, uh, especially for Linda Blair, who was only twelve at the time. Um, they a lot of people complain, or they, her and Ellen Burstyn, who played the woman in the or the the lead, uh, she was yanked violently around in the harnesses. Um, they both complained of uh, back injuries, and there was even um, painful screams that they were you know, erupting with were actually still put in the film. And those were them actually being injured. Um, almost all of the ones where they're actually injured are put in the film because they wanted it to be real. Uh, which I always thought, I wonder if there's like a contract for that for actors nowadays, you know, mm -hmm. like if I get actually injured, that doesn't, that's not going in the cut, you know, because mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd be kind of pissed. Um, Ellen Burstyn actually uh, landing on her coccyx uh, broke it when she a stuntman was uh, pulling her down. Uh, it was basically when Reagan slaps her for the first time and she falls mm -hmm. to the floor. They actually pulled her down to the floor because she wasn't falling fast enough. Um, and the director, uh, I was watching a few that documentary and the the special effects coordinator was not a. Uh, He's, he, like, malicious. He did not yeah. give a shit. He did not care about the actors <laughs> yeah. at all. Him and William Friedkin, the director, were definitely on the same page. Um, which, to him, he thought, hey, I'm doing a good job. Hey, I'm going to make sure that they get mm -hmm. the, you know, get whatever the director wants. But whatever the director wanted was, was hurting some of these actors. Um, so... The one 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 of the in, interesting sequences that happened was um, uh, O'Malley is uh, he he tells he tells William Freakin that he trusts him because Freakin's like do you, he comes up to him in the middle of the scene and he's like do you trust me do you trust me and he's like yeah yeah I trust you what do you want you know he's like trying to do this really deep scene and he slaps him across the face and then he's like go okay you know go and then they start filming oh it's the scene where he's giving the the last rites exactly yeah, yeah and his that, hands are shaking and his hands start shaking in in the film and when you see it in the film you're like oh my god that's so so brilliant and he's acting so well but he just got slapped in the face and is kind of thinking what the hell just happened but then translates it right into the film so like like i said most of these were just to get reactions um he would also stash guns uh, around the set, which <gasps> I've heard of other directors doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't think of one specifically offhand. Um, but yeah, he stashed several different guns around the set with blanks. Um, but he would fire them just to, you know, get a good take. And um, there was also, like I said, a lot of the special effects things were 
purposely manipulated or nudged in different ways to elicit different responses from the actors because they would be expecting it to go one way and it wouldn't happen that way. Um, like the pea soup scene, um, that was actually supposed to hit him right in the chest. And he thought like it was literally like him thinking it was going to be funny to mm -hmm. make it, you know, to make it, you know, right in his face and it would be really disgusting. And it, it very much was, I think if it hit him in the chest, it would have been gross, but you kind of would have been like, oh, yeah. at least it didn't get in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, the, a lot of people complained of the cold because of once once she became this powerful demon, that's when you started to notice that her breath, you know, you could see her breath. And then I think it's like a good hour left in the film where everybody's breath can be seen. And there's no CGI in there's the 70s. no CGI, so. yeah. So they just... Um, they were... literally built uh, that set into... A, they built a freezer for the set, basically. Yeah. Um, wow. So the whole set is inside of a refrigerator. And they got it down to... Um, I think it was uh, 20 degrees at times. Because they had to uh, bring in lights, which would heat up the set. So they would bring in the lights... Linda would come in wearing a fucking nightgown and they would shoot shoot what they could for like two and a half, three minutes and then everybody would have to leave to let it cool down again. Um, yeah, which is in, in, insane. Um, also, the steps where he falls um, on the end were built to be extended so that those stairs weren't that long. Um, they're actually two sets of stairs that they just kind of combined together. And the stuntman actually, or the stunt crew, actually built um, steps on top of the steps, basically, with a rubber padding. So when the stuntman falls down, you know, he can just kind of bounce all over the place. And <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting that uh, Georgetown University, where they were shooting um, the angio, uh, angiopathy or angioplasty? Damn it, I can't. An angiograph. Whatever you just said earlier. Uh, yeah, the, the angiograph. <laughs> they were... The Georgetown University students were actually across the way from the stairs, and they kept seeing, you know, them shoot this scene of the stuntman falling over and over and over. So they started getting, they started charging people five dollars to watch the stunt from the rooftops. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in the hopes that it would go wrong. I guess. Um, but yeah, that was just some like interesting tidbits. But now we'll get to the good stuff. Um, so a lot of. People complained of weird stuff happening on the sets, um, but I personally think that, you know, most of it was just the asshole of a director and stunt coordinator or, you know, uh, special effects coordinator that kind of just wanted this movie to be they good, I guess. Put everybody you know? on edge. Yeah. And, you know, push the boundaries. And, and it, I mean, it definitely, I don't know, who's to say, you know, like mm -hmm. you have... I'm trying to think of who's the nicest director. Who's who's probably the nicest director? Uh, Fred Savage. Um, <laughs> direct, you know, you direct The Exorcist. Would it have been the same? Yeah. Eh, probably not. But also... No offense know, to Fred Savage. But you're also, great. Um, the death. That's that's why we're all here. That's why you're here. Hello, listener. We, rec we saw you <laughs> from across the way. That's the real reason anyone <laughs> comes to this is to hear about... Death. Exactly. And yes, like Tia mentioned, there was some death. Um, 
Actors Jack McGrowan and Vasilik Malioros um, actually both died while the film was in post-production, which, God, that sucks. That, that reminds me of uh, Sam Warner not being able to see the theater open. Yeah. Um, after, because they put in like a couple years, you know, out of their, you know, out of their life to make the film, you know, and then don't even get to see it made. Um, but also what makes their death strange is that both of their characters died in the movie. Um, so a lot of people think that that's one of the curses of the exorcist, kind of like when uh, somebody plays Jesus or Superman, I think is another one. Oh yeah, of no, that Superman thing. Yeah. We should definitely do that on one. I was thinking about that. That's a good one. Yeah. Although I think the guy who, Brandon something, he's still doing fine. The most recent Superman. Yeah. And, and Henry Cavill. Yeah, he's doing great. Oh, yeah. But yeah, we should do something on that. Right, yeah. Um, other deaths that occurred during the film uh, was actually uh, Linda Blair's grandfather passed away during the film, uh, during the filming, and also Max von Sydow's brother uh, actually died on his first day of shooting. Which, God, that's gotta suck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. while filming, Jason Miller, who. Uh, we found out recently uh, was playing Father Karras. His son was hit by a motorcycle, uh, which nearly killed him. But I mean, he was critically uh, injured for a very long time, and this was during the film. So Father Karras is literally going from the hospital to the set every day. Uh, that's because he, you know, he's worried about his son, obviously in super critical condition. Um, but I feel like that did, uh, cross over into the film. With, and with sure. having to see his mother in the nursing home. Yeah, yeah and, right, yeah. And then she passes away and he's the, not there. Demi, Demi. <laughs> <laughs> with all, with all due respect. With all due respect. No, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a good scene too, yeah. Um... I, I I mentioned before that uh, Linda definitely had a lot of injuries, uh, specifically to her back. Um, one of the instances was on the bed, where she was literally thrown out of the bed because of a piece of the rigging broke, um, and she fell. It injured her back, and she fell over six feet. Um, and this is a twelve-year-old girl that you're throwing around. Um, Linda also received uh, a lot of death threats. And, huh. and I don't know if, I mean, I guess religious nuts or something. Yeah. I, I don't know why you would attack Linda Blair and not the director. Because they're nuts. Yeah, that's true. That's true <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but think about the things that she was saying. She was saying very oh, that's, blasphemous that's true. things in the movie. That's yeah. very true, yeah. So, you know, I mean, people just buy right into the character. They, they, they don't even think about it as a movie by that point. They're yeah. just straight up, you know. But she said some pretty horrific things. Yeah, right. That's true. You know, um, it was it was interesting too because she had Linda. Uh, um, just as a side note, Linda actually uh, wasn't uh, an actress. Really, she this is her first movie. She, this is her first film. Her first anything really acting wise. She was modeling. She just she would model for her mom's horse ranch. Um, that was her huh. real only gig in front of a camera. The reason she was picked is because her mom was in the industry 
uh, previously and knew knew the director and just brought her in one day and the director was just kind of like oh okay like you know this is this uh, super innocent little girl you know that he thought could easily possess you know this um, you know the guttural oh, voice <laughs> Nice. Uh, but yeah, they thought like, you know, this, this girl's perfect, but it was mostly because they didn't want an actor. They, they were specifically cause you know, child, child actors, you know, they can be uh, kind of hammy they, a little bit, but it's because they're not, you know, quite as developed. I mean, not to say there aren't child actors that fucking kill it like these days, you know, Haley Joel Osment, Haley Joel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah or, um, Dakota Fanning or something, you know, oh, yeah. like, there's a lot of act, but I mean, he just wanted it to be real and she seemed really incredibly real. She actually, the director actually talked to her like a person, you know, and was like, Hey, have you, do you know what this movie's about? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I read the book. And he was like, do you, huh. do you know what you have, you know, what, what happens in the, you know? And she was like, Oh, she gets possessed. And, and then she even, I think she even says, and she masturbates with a crucifix. And I was like, oh my god! Like, so he was like, kind of like, okay, well, she's like adult-minded to the point where she understands the material enough to, you know what I mean? Like, because I feel like you'd have to push that onto some different child actors for sure to kind of understand it. Because if you don't understand it, then yeah, that's gonna be really hard to pull it off. Well, like with the kid in The Shining, though, Stanley Kubrick was uh, very kind to him and. Uh, because he had his he had his own daughter around the same age, and he did certain things to where the kid, as an adult later on, says that at the time of filming he had no idea that The Shining was actually a horror movie at all. He had never seen it, and the scenes were filmed so cleverly that he didn't like. He thought it was all pretend, so he would do things like, you know, pretend to be. Angry. So it just, it really depends on the director, you know, and obviously, uh, this director, what was his name again? Uh, Friedkin. Friedkin was, I, in my opinion, a little bit of a sociopath, but, <laughs> you know. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, going back to Linda, she received tons of death threats, yeah, like we said, for, I mean, all of those reasons. Um, but... It was so bad that uh, the studio actually had to hire bodyguards to escort her for the next six months. Wow. Because um, they were just so concerned about her. Um, in 1987, actress Mercedes McCambridge, uh, who actually played the demonic voice of Pazuzu, uh, was the victim of a horrific tragedy when her son was... Uh, when her son actually murdered his wife and children before taking his own life. And this is the woman who played the devil's voice, uh, which is really creepy. Oh, wow. Did you say it was Pazuzu? Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Yeah, that's what the, uh, I think they actually say it in the film. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The name of the demon? Yeah. It's when he discovers the statue or the... Yeah. Which, Pazuzu isn't a real demon. I think it's based on the demon, which is known as Zozo. I don't know. I don't think so. No, I'm... Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I, do you, I mean, that's... Do you have, like, the... Re I just don't want to, like... <laughs> Zozo, Pazuzu. I mean, oh, no. It's just a video I watched of Richard Lales on uh, demonology. No, I've... Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah okay. I've seen... I've, the only thing I've seen is, like, Ouija videos where they mention it. Um, but I guess... But... Oh, no, you're right. But maybe you're right, yeah. 
Because that reminded me of this other story where this guy was a murderer and he called himself Pazuzu. Oh, okay. Uh, which I'll maybe tell on another podcast. <laughs> That's funny. Um, many believe the film was cursed, obviously, and that if you played it through a projector, you it was an invitation for demonic possession. So there was also <laughs> this was this film was also the ring, too. If you watched it, you know it would it would curse you. Uh, televangelist Billy Graham stated, "There is a power of evil in the film, in the fabric of the film itself." Uh, that was kind of Martin Luther. That was not. Good. That was not I'm sorry. That was not a good. Uh, not bad. Not bad. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I was. I started with Billy. Don't know where I ended. Uh, <laughs> when it was first released, the film was banned in every Middle Eastern country except for Lebanon. Wow. Uh, the re-release was banned in Lebanon, though. Just in case. <gasps> you know. <laughs> Uh, during the Roman premiere, audiences had to fight their way through a torrential downpour accompanied by thunder and lightning in order to get inside the theater. Many inside claimed to hear a horrific demonic cry coming from outside once the film started. <laughs> sure. At one showing, a woman was so frightened she passed out in the theater and broke her jaw. She later oh. sued the filmmakers, suggesting the subliminal, subliminal messages caused the accident. Warner oh. Brothers settled out of court. <laughs> we'll give you 50 bucks and free popcorn. <laughs> right. And they're like, okay, cool. It. Also, the movie was great. Um, yes, and so that is The Curse of the Exorcist. Yay. So wow. don't, don't watch it on a projector. You can watch it on we, a TV. We should do that, not though. not on a projector. I heard Laserdisc is also haunted. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, all Laserdiscs, though, not just it, the Exorcist. Is that, is that <laughs> all, what, all Laserdiscs? That why they don't exist anymore? That's why they right. don't exist. They um, had to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> a couple lawsuits in Japan about that. <laughs> so my story is the curse of Atuk. Uh, Atuk, or the incomparable Atuk, is a movie script that is attached to seven deaths. Yeah, so basically almost every actor that this script was shopped to, actually every actor this script was shopped shop to, died before the huh. film could ever be completed. There's only one known scene that was ever filmed. Oh, they did actually do something yeah. interesting. But I'll, I'll get into that. Okay, so uh, basically the plot of Ad Took, uh, it's based off of the book The Incomparable Ad Took, which was written in... 1963 by Mordecai Richler. Uh, he's Canadian. I don't know. Uh, so, oddly enough, there's nothing really spooky or creepy about the script itself or the story or the plot of the script. It's actually kind of like a typical 80s romantic comedy. So, uh, so in the screenplay of I Took, which the the... Book was adapted for film in the 1970s uh, by uh, Todd Carroll. It is also said that Michael O'Donohue worked on it, as well as later on, it was adapted a little bit later, and I'll get into that by uh, a man named Norman Jewison. I know that name. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so anyway, so... Uh, Atuk is a uh, Inuit from Alaska, and uh, he wants to see the world. And a woman named Michelle Ross, who is a documentarian, comes to Alaska 
uh, to make a documentary about his village. He stows away in her suitcase and eventually comes to New York. While he's in New York, uh, he's introduced to Michelle's boss, who is the villain of the story, uh, an Alexander McEwen. So anyways, uh, Adtuk is conned into uh, filming some commercials for Alexander McEwen, who is planning to erect a, ma a massive metropolis on top of Alaska's wilderness called the Emerald. So uh, basically, Atuk gets wise of what's going on, and uh, he lets you know his village know, and he derails the whole project, and ends up falling in love with Michelle Ross, and they move to Hawaii, and they live happily ever after. Blah blah blah. So, yeah. So the story of the script, there's not, you know, anything really scary about it. Uh, so it's a comedy, and it was first. Uh, finalized, the script was fi finalized uh, in 1979, and the first actor, uh, who Carol, the screenwriter at the time, approached to play Atuk was John Belushi. So, John Belushi was a personal friend uh, who, who was invited to play Atuk from the start. Uh, and in 1981, he finally agrees to play the role. However, on March 5th, 1982, he was found lying face down on the floor of his hotel at the Chateau Marimont. After his autopsy, it was discovered that he had died of an overdose of cocaine and heroin, and he was only 33 years old. So then in 1987, United Artisans purchases, they purchase the script uh, and they bring it to comedian Sam Kinison. No. Yeah. So it's it's reported that Kinnison uh, wanted a rewrite of the script. And I think this is when, uh, what's his name, Norman Jewison? Norman Jewison. Yeah, when he is brought, brought on to rewrite the script. Um, Sam Kinnison is actually the one who filmed a scene of Adtuk. And this is the only footage ever uh, filmed of this actual movie. But because Sam Kinison was an alcoholic and had outrageous behavior on set, the film was uh, eventually terminated. Mm -hmm. uh, but on April 10th, 1992, so about five years later, uh, Kinison and his entourage were driving on the I-95 towards Laughlin, Nevada, when a drunk driver drifts into their lane and strikes Sam Kinison and his friend's car. Uh, Kinison is able to walk out of the car, but dies shortly after. Uh, one of his friends who was there during the crash, who survived, uh, held Kinison as he died, uh, saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And eventually he said, okay, okay, and died. Kinison was 38 years old. So... Um, most scripts do get shopped around for a while before they eventually get made. And like Pat was saying, like they'll kind of play around with the idea of a few actors and they'll bring a few in. Um, it's just kind of odd that already two of the people attached with the script died. And 
we continue. Uh, in 1993, John Candy caught wind of the project and requested a copy of the script. Uh, he agrees to play the lead role, but at the time, uh, he was in Mexico, uh, completing what would then be his final film, Wagons East. On March 4th, 1994, while away from the set, uh, he was on vacation. He was found in his hotel room. He had died of cardiac, cardiac arrest. Uh, he was only 43. So some people believe that Michael O'Donohue was the one that gave John Candy the script. It's also said that uh, Michael O'Donohue was the one that originally gave John Belushi the script in 1981. Uh, Michael O'Donohue was said to have worked on the script in the early days, so this kind of makes sense. Uh, but on November 8th of 1994, Michael O'Donohue dies of a brain hemorrhage at age 54. So that's one, two, that's three already. So in 1996, United Artisans approaches Chris Farley. Now, uh, he agrees to do the script, or agrees to do it, uh, but in November 1997, uh, Chris Farley's brother checks him into uh, the John Hancock Center in Chicago due to his drug use. Uh, if you guys don't know Chris Farley, always did drugs, he was an alcoholic, and uh, he was very much into cocaine and heroin, which was common for comedians during the 80s and the 90s. So on December 18th, 1997, Chris Farley uh, goes back to his apartment uh, accompanied by a call girl. They drank excessively and they did drugs throughout the night. At 2 a.m., he has a massive heart attack. Uh, he collapses on the floor and he's begging the call girl for help, but she refuses to help him. She doesn't do anything and he dies. Uh, now he did ingest cocaine and heroin throughout the night, but upon his autopsy, uh, they found that it was due to, oh, okay, I can say this, atherosclerosis oh, geez, yeah. in his arteries, basically a buildup of his arteries. So, Chris Farley, however, before he died, while he was still planning to work on the project, had asked Phil Hartman to play the... <laughs> right? Right, yeah. Oh, my God. Just digging and digging. So, uh, he had asked to play... Uh, he asked Phil Hartman to play the co-starring role of Alexander McEwen, the villain of the movie. Uh, Chris Farley and uh, Phil Hartman had worked on SNL together. Um, Hartman expressed interest and suggested they start working on the project in 1997, which ended up not happening because Chris Farley passed away. Um, and this is like the worst part of the story, what happens to Phil Hartman. Oh, this is a doozy. Yeah. So, on May 28th, 1998, Phil Hartman had a heated argument with his wife, Bren. Uh, due to her drug abuse and alcoholism. Uh, Hartman went to bed after the argument, and at 3 a.m., Bryn went into his bedroom and shot him three times while he was sleeping, point blank. He was 49. 
Now, Bryn ran over to the neighbor's house and confessed. And the neighbor was obviously freaked out, but went back to uh, the their house uh, because the neighbor knew the two kids were at the house. So the neighbor uh, convinces Bryn to let her take the two children out of the house. Uh, Phil Hartman's kids were in the house the entire time that he, he was shot. Now... The neighbor calls the police, obviously, and when the police arrive, uh, Bryn shouts out, I told you I did it, I told you I did it, and then turns the gun on herself and kills herself. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, seven deaths, a murder-suicide attached to this script, and so we can all be kind of uh, relieved to know that United Artisans uh, requested a seizure of all the copies of the script. Uh, and it is now locked away in one of their offices. <laughs> never to be, never to be made again. But there are a few copies of the script floating around. Uh, you can also buy the original book, The Incomparable Ed Took, that the film was based on. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's in my shopping cart right now for Amazon. <laughs> And that is the very strange and weird story of the cursed movie script Ad Took. Good guy. Nice. Ugh, man, that's crazy. So let's go down the list again. So you had, you started with John Belushi. Belushi. Then it went to John Candy. Hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. Belushi, then Kinnison. Sam Kinnison. Oh, Sam Kinnison, that's right. Then Then John Belushi. uh, Then John John Candy. Candy. Then Michael O'Donoghue. The guy who wrote the book, or wrote the wrote screenplay? The he wrote, yeah, he helped on the screenplay. All right, I wrote the screenplay. Chris then Farley. Chris Farley. Then Phil, Phil Hartman, Hartman. And his, his wife. wife. <clears throat> How many is that? So that's seven. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I graduated, when I graduated, got out of high school, I started working with my dad. And so I was working with newspapers all the time, and that's that was in the mid to late 90s. So all that stuff that you were talking about, I saw in the newspapers constantly because I delivered, you know, anywhere from eight to ten different types of newspapers, a lot from New York and stuff. And uh, when when that murder-suicide happened, that was, like, huge news. Yeah, you man. Know? Especially because... Huge news. Obviously, <clears throat> when Farley died, that made the newspapers, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, John Candy, I was still in high school when that happened, and that was sad because, of course, you know, he was such a big '80s staple, yeah, and uh, such a so, such a well liked character actor, you know. Yeah. Um. So it was a, a lot of those stories. I even remember when Sam Kinison died because, uh, you know, Howard Stern and Sam Kinison, they were friends, and yeah. you know, so I, I knew all about his comedy, and he had a video on MTV called "What." He covered that song "Wild Thing." <laughs> oh my god, oh, I forgot about so that. Doing that song "Wild Thing." Oh Wild Thing, god. you made me. He had yeah, with. What's her name? It, um, shoot, there's some very famous '80s girl that was in the video, but uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So I, a lot of those murders and you know suicides and, and and deaths are very close to what I remember, you know. But I didn't realize that they were attached to that film, so that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, is it a cursed script or is it just a coincidence? Right. I mean, yeah, the fact that you had an you had an overweight male character for the for the lead role didn't yeah. help. <laughs> Doesn't help. Yeah, exactly. That's another the, thing, and I yeah. think that I think that was also another reason that Phil Hartman passing away was shocking too, is because you know, you know no matter what, how it happened, you're still like, 
but he was so young and healthy. You know, By the you know way, what I mean? Even though, to, even though Chris uh, Farley just Sam was doing Kinison, coke. <laughs> I thought that was, a, I don't know if you guys thought of, you know, thought about it, but you know, like you said, he got fired from the set for ex excessive drug use and drinking. And ironically, he had gone to rehab and was sober when he was killed by a drunk driver weaving into his lane. Oh, God, wow. that's crazy. So that was pretty nuts. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah that's a trip. Well, really cool story, Thea. That's, uh, that's a neat one. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Thank you. That adds a little Where did you know? How did you hear about too. that story? I think I heard it from, like, top ten cursed movies or something like that, or... I don't know. I watch so much YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to fall down that rabbit hole. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, all it's, right. When I when I first moved to LA and I was doing uh, repairing pools and spas with my brother, that was one of the first houses I went to was Phil Hartman's old place. Wow. Get out. Uh, yeah, and apparently the guy told my brother too. He was like, "Do you want to see the bedroom?" And I'm like. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like, are you for real, man? Like, yeah. God, it's like, is wow. that why you bought this place? You oh. sick fuck. Wow. But I guess, yeah. I knew that um, she, I knew that she had killed herself. I didn't realize that she went over to the neighbors and confessed and then came back and, and like yelled at. That's crazy. Uh, I yeah. thought that she just, I thought that the cops got there and they found both the bodies there and they, she was already dead. Yeah. But I mean, thank God that she did or else the neighbor, who knows what would have happened to the kids. Yeah, the kids were like probably like eight and eleven or something like that. They were pretty yeah. young, but they were old enough to know what was going on. So that's yeah. what was really messed up about it. Yeah, that's All right. crazy. All right, guys, do you want your assignments for next week? I'm excited. What do we got? Yeah. Okay, so Jameson. So these are all connected together. Um, maybe. Well, it's a little obvious, but uh, so Jameson, I want you to. Uh, research and tell us about Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey. Yeah, I want you to Mr. tell Satan us. Satan himself. Yep, yep. And I want you to focus also on his celebrity connections. Okay. Okay. Pat, I want you to tell us about uh, Jane Mansfield and her tragic death and the conspiracy is behind her death. Mm. I'm, I'm down with that. That's going to be good. That's going to be really good. Uh, and my story, I'm just going to entitle it The Ghost of the Pink Palace. Ooh. Pink Palace. Mm-hmm. Oh, All right. Man. Yep. Well, now, why did you pick that story? Because maybe what I, what if I wanted the story about the Pink Palace? Do you want to do The Ghost of the Pink Palace? <laughs> if I had known you know what, Tia? Palace, I'm going to let you have this one, okay? Okay. Just good. this once. You but know why? Because I'm like, I'm literally in a pink room right now. So. I know. That's why it's so perfect for you. But I get to do the story of the Purple Princess when it's done, okay? Yes, okay. of course. All right. The tragic death of the Purple Princess. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's going to be Sparkle some motion is all me. It's going to be a really gruesome story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Yes, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, is the collective work of the owners and employees of Hollywood's Haunted Tours. It is available on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, like, and share, because sharing is scary. For more information on Hollywood's Haunted, visit our website at hollywoodshaunted.com. We'll see you guys next time. This is Jameson, Tia, and Patrick saying peace out. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks.